Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 4. Ezekiel chapter 4. I want to read both chapters 4 and 5. Read Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5, please. Upon finding that, please, please pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word, I pray you would enable us to see it, to hear it, to receive it, Father, enable, I pray, your word to have its full impact on us with all the balance and all the nuances that are here, Father, I pray that you would enable us to receive them and to to feel them and to understand them. And this, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 4 verse 1. Now, son of man, take a clay tablet, put it in front of you and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it and put battering rams around it. Then take an iron pan and uh, place it as an iron wall between you and the city and turn your face toward it. It will be under siege and you shall besiege it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. Then lay on your left side and put the sin of the house of Israel upon yourself. You are to bear their sin for the number of days you lie on your side. I have assigned you the same number of days as the years of their sin. So 390 days you will bear the sin of the house of Israel. After you have finished this, lie down again this time on your right side. And bear the sin of the house of Judah. I have assigned you 40 days, a day for each year. Turn your face toward the siege of Jerusalem and with your bare arm uh, prophesy against her. I will tie you up with ropes so that you cannot turn from one side to the other until you have finished the days of your siege. Take wheat and barley, beans, lentils, millet and spelt and put them in a storage jar and use them to make bread for yourself. You are to eat it during the 390 days you lie on your side. Weigh out 20 shekels of food um, to eat each day and eat it at set times. Also measure out a sixth of a hin of water and drink it at set times. Eat the food as you would a barley cake. Bake it in the sight of the people using human excrement for fuel. The Lord said in this way the people of Israel will eat defiled food among the nations where I drive them. Then I said, no, not so, sovereign Lord. I've never defiled myself from my youth until now. I've never eaten anything found dead or torn by wild animals. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. Very well, he said, I will let you bake your bread over cow manure instead of human excrement. He he then said to me, Son of man, I will cut off the supply of food in Jerusalem. The people who eat rationed food in anxiety and drink rationed water in despair. For food and water will be scarce. They will be appalled at the sight of each other and will waste away because of their sin. Now, Son of man, take a sharp sword and use it as a barber's razor to shave your head and your beard. And take a set of scales and divide up the hair. When the days of your siege come to an end, burn a third of the hair with fire inside the city. Take a third and strike it with the sword all around the city and scatter a third to the wind, for I will pursue them with drawn sword. But take a few strands of hair, tuck them away in the folds of your garments. Again, take a few of these and throw them onto the, into the fire and burn them up. The fire will spread from there to the whole house of Israel." This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of of the nations with countries all around her. Yet in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. You've been more unruly than the nations around you and have not followed my decrees or kept my laws. 
you have not even conformed to the standards of the nations around you. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of your detestable idols, I will do to you whatever, what, I never, what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children, and children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Therefore, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your vile images and detestable practices, I myself will withdraw my favor. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside inside you. A third will fall by the sword outside your walls. And a third I will scatter to the winds and pursue with drawn swords. Then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. And when I have spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in anger and in wrath and with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot to destroy you. I will bring more and more famine upon you and cut off your supply of food. I will send famine and wild beasts against you and they will leave you, you childless. Plague and bloodshed will sweep through you and I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now, when we began Ezekiel, I said my primary hope was to see God as He is. And as He reveals Himself and not miss anything about Him. And that still remains my hope and so the question we have uh, as we come to this particular passage what does it mean what did it mean for them certainly what does it say to us about God and how then do we understand him I remember Ezekiel has seen God and in seeing God has been humbled flat on his face remember it was only by the spirit of God that he could eventually stand for the Holy Spirit lifted him up and it was only by the Holy Spirit that he could listen to the word of God and receive it. And then he was commissioned, he was charged to take that which God spoke to him and to speak it to this people, a rebellious people instead of people who won't listen to you. And they won't listen to him because they don't listen to God. And you remember the particular times in which Ezekiel was speaking, it was a time of exile. Remember in 605 BC, the first group of exiles left Jerusalem. There was Daniel and his crowd in uh, 598 B.C., Ezekiel and others were exiled then to Babylon, 700 miles away from Jerusalem. And uh, now he finds himself there. It's approximately 593 B.C., five years after he's been exiled. But still before, it's still before as this event takes place, it's still before the destruction of Jerusalem, which won't happen. It'll begin in 588 B.C. and end ultimately in 586 B.C. Since we're doing the B.C. thing, that's later than the 593 B.C. in which we find ourselves at this particular moment. Now, God calls then Ezekiel to enact, to enact this prophetic word that is at least in part prior to explanation, at least in part to act it out. And so the very first thing he does in chapter 4 is he, he, he builds a city. 
just like a young boy might build a city. He takes a brick or a, a foot square, probably a clay tablet, and on it he draws the city of Jerusalem. Probably not in great detail, but how we might if you went to uh, New York City, you'd buy a plate with the skyline of New York City on it. So you bring it back, people look at that and they say, oh yes, that's New York. Well, in some sense, he was able to draw on this clay tablet something that resembled Jerusalem. So when he would put it out outside of his little hut, uh, people could, would walk by that, see that little drawing and go, oh, that's the city of Jerusalem. And then just like a young boy who's playing army, he, may, he would then bring siege against that city he would begin to build siege ramps against it. In those days, if you were going to take a city, uh, there were a couple of strategies. One was simply to wait the city out, which would mean you would bring your army and you would surround the city. And you would keep everything from everything getting into the city or anyone getting out of the city. And that way, eventually, this, the people in there would starve. And if you wanted to hasten their demise, you would build siege ramps up over the walls of the city. You could do that in a number of different ways, but the goal of that would be to be able to have your army people scale that wall in order to go in and destroy. And so that's the picture here. And then the oddity is that Ezekiel takes this iron pan, this skillet-looking thing, this flat iron pan, and he, he, he places it in front of his face and points his face and this pan towards the city of Jerusalem. As if God is saying, I've, I've taken uh, my gaze, if you will, or my, my presence away from this city. There is a barrier between us and now the city can be sieged by, by all of its enemies. So there you have it. It just sits out there in, in, in front of Ezekiel's home. For everyone to see, it appears as if it stays up. And if you see movies of refugee camps, you know how quickly word spreads in such a community. And no doubt everybody knew what Ezekiel had done. But then, to make it more obvious, God says, all right, I want you to lay down beside this thing. First, I want you to lay on your left side for 390 days. Now think about that. Now, it's likely that he's not laying there 24-7 because he's got to get up and fix meals and so forth and so on. But at least some significant portion of the day, for 390 days, there is Ezekiel laying on his side. And then, after that's finished, he turns over to his other side for 40 more days to lie on his side. All the while, at least while he's lying there, he's tied up. So he can't shift sides. And so people are coming by and seeing Ezekiel do this. And God says, this is representative, this is standing for 390 years that I've come against the northern kingdom, 40 years to come against the southern kingdom and their sin. And then he begins to describe the way that Ezekiel is to eat. And those are famine conditions. The grains that he's to combine are not grains that you would normally combine. The amounts that he's going to eat are small amounts. And he's going to eat them at very disciplined set times. He only gets a pint or so of water each day to take at particular moments in time. And not only is it famine conditions, but you can see that all that God wants the people to know that all human dignity is out the window. Because the first instruction is that they're, they're to, 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 to cook this over human excrement. And thus, even in the moment, they're be defiled by doing such a despicable thing. 
Of course, it's at that point, interestingly, just it's just interesting. Ezekiel says, God, I can't do that. I don't mind you wanting to communicate to the people that they'll be defiled, but I don't want to be defiled in my enactment of this scene. So God in His graciousness, I, I don't know why this is even in the Bible. It's just nice, isn't it? I mean, it's just nice that God goes, okay, I won't make you be defiled, but, but you get my point, Ezekiel. You get the point that, that what's really going on here is that the people have reached a point where they're utterly defiled. That's how bad this is going to be. But okay, I know this does not sound like a concession to us, but you can cook it over cow manure, he says. And it's better. Okay? More common. Less defiling. But he says, I want you to see how bad this is going to be. That there will be enemies, Babylon will know, will come against the city of Jerusalem and bring siege against the city. And it will be really, really bad be really really bad there'll be great famine and then he says I want you then to take your sword your razor and I want you to shave your head and I want you to shave your beard which would have been in a refugee situation especially especially a Jewish refugee situation it would have been unthinkable and he would have looked the strangest man there having shaved his head and having no facial hair at all. Shave it all off. And then God says, I want you to take that hair, I want you to put it on a scale, and I want you to divide it up into, into thirds. Three different piles of hair. And I want you to take a third of it, and I want you to take it and sprinkle it over the city. It's the siege that you've built here. This play-acting city. I want you to sprinkle it in there, and, and no doubt he would have started a little coal fire in there or something, so that when those hairs would hit it, they'd just crinkle and, and crack and singe and burn and smell and sizzle. Hair doesn't burn well. It's kind of this smells. That in the city. And then I want you to take a third of it. I want to take your sword and I want you to chop it up even more all over the place. Right outside all of this. And then I want you to take a third of it and just sort of blow it in the wind. But before you do that, I want you to take out just a few hairs and stick them in your belt. And then take a few of those hairs and I want you to throw them back in the city. Verse 12 of chapter 5. A third of your people will die of the plague or perish by famine inside you. In other words, while this is happening and the siege is taking place, a third of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will die in there in the worst possible conditions of disease and famine because they can't get clean water and they can't take care of themselves and they can't get food and they're going to die miserably. And then he says, and a third will fall by the sword outside your walls. The courageous ones, the ones who basically say, I've had enough, let's attack. They'll get killed outside the city. And he said, in the third, I will scatter to the winds, exile, and, and then maybe they'll escape. But then he goes on to say, and pursue them with drawn sword. And you get the sense that those few, of the few that were in his belt that were thrown back in the city, somehow will get burned up with the rest of them. And so there's just a small number, it appears, who will escape at all. But that's the situation. 
And he says it's, it's even worse than that. The unthinkable begins to happen. That the people inside, before they die, become cannibals. That when one dies, then they eat that one who has died. I don't know if we could really paint a more horrible picture than what Ezekiel enacts. Now the question is, why? Why is God going to do this? And what's it say about, about Him? Well, He gives His reasons in chapter 5 and uh, verse 5. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, This is Jerusalem which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her, yet in her wickedness she has rebelled against uh, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has, and has not followed uh, my decrees. He's saying they've disobeyed me, and that's why I'm going to do this. This horrible, despicable situation for them is because they've disobeyed God. Then in verse 13 of chapter 5, he says this, then my anger will cease and my wrath against them will subside and I will be avenged. That is, he's doing this so that he can vent, so that he can satisfy his, his anger and his wrath. Alright? He's doing this because they've disobeyed and he's doing this so that he can avenge his anger and his wrath, which are real in God, real in Him. And then he goes on to say, And when I've spent my wrath upon them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my zeal. That is, they'll know it came from me. They need to understand not only that they've disobeyed, and not only that my wrath is against them, but it's mine. I've brought this. I've done this. It hasn't just been Babylon. This just wasn't, it wasn't just random attacks. It wasn't simply because they had made poor political decisions and left themselves vulnerable to attack. It isn't that they were such a wonderful group of people in which another country would want to conquer any of those, whatever secular, whatever political, whatever national reasons might be there that one nation would attack another. I want you to know that I did this. And finally, verse 14, he says, I will make you a ruin and a reproach among the nations around you in the sight of all who pass by. You will be a reproach <clears throat> and a taunt, a warning, and an object of horror to the nations around you when I inflict punishment on you in your anger and in wrath with stinging rebuke. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I shoot at you with my deadly and destructive arrows of famine, I will shoot uh, to destroy you. He's saying, I want all the nations to know this. I want them to realize that I will not be mocked by you. That when people disobey me, when nations disobey me, most especially my own, that I won't be mocked. Now, what does this really tell us then about God, number one? It tells us that no matter what anybody else might think about the, the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, 
that is what he knows. The omnipresence of God, that is the very presence of God. That God is in fact sovereign. Because he's saying this years before it takes place. And thus he's saying, listen, not only do I know what is going to happen, but it will happen, not simply because I know it, but because I decree that it will happen. That is, God says, I know it's Babylon who comes against you, but it's really me. That is, I, the Lord, can and will work through the free will decisions, the choices that other people make in order to get my ends met, my goals satisfied. I won't be thwarted. Nothing can stop me. Don't ever think that God doesn't know the future. Don't ever think that God hasn't ordained the future. Don't ever think that God isn't at work through all of us and through every circumstance and every situation and everything to bring about His ends. He won't be thwarted. How does He do that? I don't know. I haven't got a clue. I can't even get people to do what I want them to do when I'm at my manipulative best. Is it? I don't know how he does that. He just does. God continues to say to us throughout the scripture, I'm not like you. He's God, you see. First thing. Second thing uh, that it tells us is that God is faithful to his covenant. Everything that's going to happen in Jerusalem and everything that has already happened in the northern kingdom, he already said would happen if they disobey him. The amazing thing is that he said it all the way back in the Pentateuch, all the way back in the covenant with Moses, all the way back in, in for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 28. And he didn't carry it out until Ezekiel. Hundreds and hundreds of years later, it shows this tremendous patience. That's the amazing thing. But he tells them this, and, and I won't read all of these chapters, but for instance, in Deuteronomy in chapter 28 and verse 25, after Moses tells them that in being in covenant with God, there are blessings and curses. That if you obey the covenant and you walk with God, there are blessings in that. But if you disobey the covenant, then there are curses that come upon you. And one of the curses that was to come upon Israel in disobeying God was war. Uh, Verse 25 of Deuteronomy 28, The Lord will cause you to be uh, defeated before your enemies. You'll come at them from one direction, but flee from them in seven. And you'll become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms uh, on earth. He says, listen, that's what's going to happen. He says, don't understand. When you don't walk with me, God says, then horrible things happen to you. Verse 36, the same chapter, the Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a nation unknown to you or your fathers. There you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror and an object in scorn of scorn and ridicule to all the nations where the Lord will drive you. You're going to exile And you won't be loved and respected there. And your whole way of life will change. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down a nation whose language you won't understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They'll devour, devour the young of your livestock and crops and so forth and so forth. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land of the Lord your God is giving you. And, and again, please... Hear this, just because of the suffering, verse 53 of Deuteronomy 28, because of the suffering that your enemy will afflict on you during the siege, 
You'll eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion on his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. And he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. Verse 56, the most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge the husband she loves and her own son or daughter the afterbirth from the womb and the children she bears. For she intends to eat them secretly during the siege and in the distress that your enemy will inflict on you in your cities. And on and on we read what will happen. There's no secret to them. Anyone wise amongst them in this exile condition will see all that Ezekiel is enacting and know precisely what it means. That by not following God, by not walking with Him, by not worshiping Him, by not following His ways, and remember when we say follow His ways, we mean follow all of his ways, including the sacrifices which he provided in order to atone for their sins so they could continue to be in relationship with him. This was a gracious God. This was a God of love and mercy and kindness and grace whom they turned away from to worship other gods, saying, we don't need your forgiveness. We don't need your atonement. And so this, Ezekiel says, is what will come upon you. So God is faithful. God is faithful to his word. He won't be mocked. Justice with God delayed is not justice denied. Even after the centuries. And thus we see, in fact, it is true that God uh, is judge. He's referred to in the scripture over and over again as the judge, the one who will judge all the earth. In fact, that's the very place of God, isn't it? The very place of God is to judge because it's God alone who has the authority to judge and to judge others. You and I only have a certain measure of authority with which to judge each other because all the while, while we're judging one another, we really do know that we could be the one being judged. And so it's only to keep order that we must judge and really Truly, it's only under God that we can judge. It's only by His decree and only by His standard. But not only does He have the authority, but He is the righteous one. That is to say, He's the right one. In Him is all righteousness, is all rightness. And every evil and every sin really is against Him. You see, when you sin even against me, in some sense, and you do that... Oh, I can be offended, but not wholly, because I can also sin against you. I'm not all that righteous. But God is. And thus you see, to sin against the right one, the righteous one, gives him the right and authority to be that one who is the judge. That's why he could say, you'll have no other gods before me. Why? Because he is God. And there are no other gods. 
and to, to have any other God that one might trust in or rely upon or follow when there is one holy God is a great offense against Him. And you say, well, does it, does it lead to this kind of result? The answer, of course, is yes, it does. Why? Because it isn't only the level of the particular sin, but the holiness of the one against the sin is committed. For instance, which would be the greater sin? To take a pitcher of water and throw it on one of my paintings or a Van Gogh? Which is the greater offense for a diamond cutter to make a small mistake in a $500 diamond or to make that same mistake in a $10 million diamond. You see, it's not simply what we're doing, but it's the one against whom we're doing it. If someone turns against another person and that other person against whom they've turned have lived a life of relative apathy towards them, well, that's one thing. But to turn against someone who's loved you and sacrificed for you and given to you, we say, is a great offense. Because it's against this one who doesn't deserve it, who's been pure in their relationship with you and loved you. And thus, with God, He's the one who's been gracious. He's the one who's given. He's the one who's blessed. And yet to turn against Him, therefore, is a huge offense. And it really is that the punishment fits this crime he's the judge and you see his wrath as we come to understand who God really is his wrath is right and good it isn't like our wrath it isn't like our anger see our wrath can flare up at the stupidest things just because we're personally offended someone pulls out in front of us we want to kill them you see we sit at sporting events praying that certain people get hurt on the other team when they have mothers who love them. But we don't think about that. We want them to do badly. We want them to throw interceptions and feel really bad because we're just mad at them. And when they score against us, and it's so silly, isn't it? And even we fail. In the midst of getting that mad at those kinds of things, we fail even to be moved by the enormous injustice that takes place in the context of our world. We watch it, we watch it that on TV in passion, no passion at all. We turn the weather and we're mad that it's going to rain tomorrow. God's wrath isn't like that. God's wrath is perfect. God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is measured. But it's real wrath. This isn't some sort of a objective computer in the sky that isn't affected by our sin. He is. And the Bible speaks of it in the context of His wrath and His holiness. And if this wrath and anger weren't true of God, He would cease to be God. To become indifferent to all of these injustices and rebellion ceases to be moral. And so He must. And so you see, God's holiness exposes our sin and His wrath opposes it. His wrath is good and 
right and holy. And you know, sometimes we think, well, that's just the Old Testament God. That in the New Testament, God becomes a Christian. <laughs> and that, that, that he's no longer quite like that. But the truth of the matter is, there's more references to the wrath and the anger of God in the New Testament than there are to his love. In fact, the one who's then appointed as real judge is Jesus. And the one who speaks of the wrath of God and hell more than any other is Jesus himself. As author Dorothy Sayers once put it, it isn't hell, isn't the invention of medieval priests trying to raise money to build cathedrals. The whole concept, the whole notion, the popularization of hell as an idea, as a place, comes from Jesus himself. John the Baptist speaks of Jesus, and as he does, he speaks to him of him like this. And you don't have to turn to these, I'm just going to read hell verses in Matthew in chapter 3. John says, I'll baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the, into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable, unquenchable fire. Matthew then records these words of Jesus. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's how Jesus <clears throat> describes hell. He says this, Jesus does, Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body. In hell, he says, you can be destroyed there. He goes on to say this in another place. If the miracles that were performed in you, that is in Capernaum, had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, there would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Jesus speaks very forthrightly about judgment. Remember in the parable of the weeds, Jesus says the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And another occasion, another place. He goes on to say, and if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell is imaged by all those little hairs in the city of Jerusalem smoldering. You remember in this scene where Jesus separates sheep and goats, then he will say to the one on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Finally, this one, Mark in chapter 9. 
He says, and if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This hell is eternal. And it's real. I haven't time to read them all. The most, perhaps, devastating of all pictures, even worse than the picture that Ezekiel gives to us, is in Revelation chapter 14. Verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him with the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth, earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth and gathered its grapes and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. He said, hell is like grapes going in a winepress. And then the image changes and their blood flows. That's the image of hell. Now, do I share all this to scare you? Yes. Yes, I do. I do. I read this week in Christianity Today an article entitled Conventions Are Hell. The author was speaking of denominational meetings. It was quite a good article, but it was a bad title. Hell is unimaginable. We mustn't ever speak of it flippantly. No one has ever had a hell of a good time. No experience, and I know we've experienced horrible things, and people have experienced very, very great trouble and sorrow. But really, honestly, and I say this respectfully and reverently, of the worst a human being has experienced, it isn't hell. Now, how does this square with God? Well, it squares with his justice and his holiness, but you know there's another aspect of God that collides with this character of God in him. And I don't know any other way to put it. Because while I don't think God is struggling within himself, yet there are characteristics of God, like his wrath, that come from even his holiness, wherein his love flows as well. But all the time throughout the scripture, we see the justice of God, yet we always see with that the mercy and the grace of God human beings sin and there's the curse but there's also the promise that a day will come when one will come from the seed of the woman who will crush evil the head of the serpent and even though there's great sin in the tower of Babel and God destroys and separates still there's the promise that a day will come and still even though the judges do what say that in the, in the times of the judges people are doing what is right in their own eyes and there's great sin still God raises up judges for them to free them in this cycle and even though the kings are bad there's still David and there's still good kings that flow and there's still the promise of the prophets that a king greater than David is going to come who's going to shepherd his people and be kind to them even as Ezekiel brings to us and then of course there's Christ because you see it's right then as I never, ever tire of thinking, never, ever tired of saying, that in the cross, justice and mercy 
love and judgment crash. The way that the Apostle puts it perfectly, of course, in Romans in chapter 3 is like this. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short to the glory of God and are justified. Now, those words just can't go together. You can't fall short of the glory of God in sin and not come under God's wrath. So you can't have that happen and be justified. But the apostle says, no, 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 you don't understand. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. How can that be? Well, freely by His grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. I'm reading out of the NIV today. I should have been reading out of the New American Standard or the English Standard Version for verse 25. God presented him, the NIV says, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood, that is, as a propitiation. And the word propitiation is the word for us. It's the word for us. Because it means exactly what Ezekiel heard from God. When God said at the end of all this, after I've brought the siege on the city and all this horribleness has happened, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be avenged, then I'll be finished with my wrath and my anger. What do you see? That means it was propitiated. Propitiation means that God's wrath, real righteous wrath, has now been satisfied. And the good news is that that doesn't need to happen in the city it doesn't need to happen in us in hell for it happened in Christ I must confess to you I did something I've never done before I wrote an editorial a letter to the editor of the Christianity Today two lines it won't get published it's just simply said we should never use the word hell like this because you see to do so would diminish its horror and the work of Christ. Christ did not suffer the experience of a denominational meeting, however bad those are, on the cross. He suffered hell that we might live. And in doing so, satisfied the justice, the perfection of God's holy wrath for us. Now, I said I shared this in part to scare us, to humble us, to silence us, to sober us. But you can't really ever scare hell out of anyone and scare someone to heaven. Because simply being afraid of the punishment doesn't mean that you're sorry for the wrong. It could simply mean that you're afraid of pain, which is a rational thought. To move from being under the wrath of God to being under His blessing is to embrace Christ and to trust Him. And that is to repent. 
It is to say, this is wrong and unsatisfying. I desire Christ. That's why the New Testament can use belief in Christ and love for Christ as synonyms. It isn't just that we're escaping hell. It's that we're embracing Christ. It isn't just that we're leaving punishment. It's that we're entering heaven joyfully. And heaven is the place where everything reflects Christ. If you simply don't want the punishment, the pain for your sin, that isn't the same as being saved. Desiring Christ and not your sin. His faith in Him. Let's pray. Father, You are holy. We bow before You. And in one sense, we shudder before you. Never have we even contemplated such holiness, such perfection, but never too have we ever seen such mercy and grace. So I pray for me, for all of us, that none of us here would live without Christ, that none of us here would die without Christ that we would embrace him to turn from our sin understanding its right deserts and embrace Christ with our whole heart don't let us sleep don't let us sleep if the siege is to come upon us but awaken our souls and this I pray in Jesus name Amen please stand for the benediction as you do I remind you that uh, Elders are available to pray. Please take advantage of that. The response to the benediction is praise be to God. Amen. You're giving praise to a God who has in him wrath and mercy. Praise be to God. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. May the Lord bless you. And may he keep you. And may he make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, praise be to God. Amen.